Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamat, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Damania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital, and we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things med-ed in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. Welcome to our episode of a four-year-old girl with bite marks and swelling of her foot. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A four-year-old girl, previously healthy, suddenly started limping during playtime. Her parents noticed swelling and unusual bite marks on her foot, and they became more panicked. The girl has never been hospitalized, has always been up to date on her shots, has no allergies, and has not been on any medications. There is no overt concern for trauma as well. Her family recently relocated to a rural area known for its array of wildlife. Her family history reveals no coagulation disorders. Due to the escalating swelling and pain, along with the unusual puncture wounds, the parents, rightly concerned, seek immediate medical attention. Upon arrival at the emergency department, her vital signs are concerning. An elevated heart rate and dropping blood pressure hinting at systemic effects. The initial physical exam reveals more than just two puncture wounds. There's extensive localized redness, swelling, and signs of developing tissue necrosis. She's in visible pain, disoriented, adding to the growing concern. The lab's return with more unsettling news. There's a significant rise in white blood cells, and more alarmingly, her coagulation profile is starting to show abnormalities. The emergency room team rapidly starts administering high-dose analgesics and begins discussions about starting antivenom. Facing the mounting urgency, the emergency room team begins fluid resuscitation in the setting of her low blood pressure, And now she is being admitted to the PICU. So to summarize key elements from this case, this patient is a healthy girl living in a rural location who has sudden limping. Concerning viral signs upon presentation with abnormal labs, including a coagulopathy, she also has a presentation of shock in the setting of potential envenomation. Absolutely, Pradeep. And so this episode on snakebite injury in the PICU will be organized in the following ways. We'll be going through epidemiology, pathophysiology, diagnoses and clinical syndromes, management both in the pre-hospital and hospital care setting, and finally, follow-up. So let's get into this. Pradeep, I want to start with the first question. What is a simple way to classify the types of snake envenomation? Now, Rahul, that's a great question. Snakes with venom-delivering fangs, primarily Elapidae and Viperidae, are responsible for most human fatalities and envenomations that we see. We are focusing today on pit vipers, a subgroup known for infrared-sensitive facial pits. This group includes rattlesnakes, cottonmouths, and our central figure, the copperhead. Copperheads can be identified by their copper-colored head and distinct inverted Y markings. The cottonmouth, a semi-aquatic pit viper, exhibits a dark olive to black color with pale oral mucosa. 
Alapids such as coral snake differ by having round pupils, short fangs, and no facial pit. Coral snakes can be recognized by their bright red and black bands separated by yellow ones. But beware, they're often confused with harmless lookalikes. Remember the rhyme, red on yellow, kill a fellow, red on black, venom lack. Alapids are typically slender-bodied snakes and include many of the well-known species of medical significance such as cobras, mambas, crates, coral snakes, taipans, tiger snakes, and the deadly sea snakes. In the inpatient setting, we mostly see copperhead bites, whereas nocturnal coral snakes rarely cause bites. The clinical importance lies in correctly identifying the snake to administer the appropriate treatment. So Rahul, here's a question. What are the typical pediatric patient risk factors for snake bite? Absolutely, Pradeep. So going into the literature here, you know, keep in mind that snakes typically avoid humans. But in the PICU, we often see cases where toddlers have unintentionally disturbed snakes, particularly in low light conditions or grassy areas resulting in the bites. Teenagers actually try to capture snakes. And this is another frequent group presenting with upper extremity bites. Now, snake bite incidents can also arise from mishandling venomous pet snakes, particularly by those who are inexperienced, inattentive, overconfident, or frankly, intoxicated. Even intentional envenomation, such as in attempts to develop venom tolerance or during certain religious ceremonies, these patients can actually end up in the PICU. Now, it's important to remember even experienced handlers like zookeepers can fall prey to snake bites. And so one important fact to keep in mind is that annually, snake envenomation causes 90 to 125,000 global deaths. And this is predominantly in rural, low-income regions with limited healthcare access. And so to mitigate this, the World Health Organization initiated global efforts in 2018. In fact, in the US and Canada, around 6,500 envenomations occur and 7 to 15 deaths occur yearly due to those envenomations with half of the 1,300 pediatric cases being venomous. Good points, Rahul. Can you help us dive deeper in the pathophysiology behind snake envenomation, especially as it pertains to pediatric critical care setting? Absolutely, Pradeep. So snake venoms are heterogeneous mixtures of different toxic protein families with each protein family potentially containing many different toxins, which makes it difficult to predict which snake bites may lead to severe injury or death. Toxins have evolved to affect various physiologic systems and can be neurotoxic, hemotoxic, myotoxic, or cytotoxic, depending on the site of action. And we're going to dive into this later on in the episode. Now, these toxins are typically monomeric, but some of these toxins can undergo conformational change with themselves or other toxins to become multimeric. If they oligomerize with the same toxin, they are homomeric. And if they oligomerize with different toxins, they are heteromeric. Most snake toxins are in the mass range of 4 to 100 kilodaltons. Snake venoms can be grouped into four dominant protein families, phospholipase A2, 
snake venom metalloprotease or SVMP, snake venom serine protease, and three finger toxin. Now, envenomation from snake bites can happen as soon as possible, or the effects can be delayed four to six hours later, at which point clinical and lab anomalies arise. So initially, a patient may just present with a bite mark and can be totally asymptomatic. But it is for this reason that all children with suspected snake bite should be admitted or at least evaluated in the hospital setting. Pradeep, let's shift gears. And can you delve into typical syndromes we might observe in the wake of snake envenomation? Rahul, that's a great question. So the impact of a snake bite hinges on the snake type, fang size, and whether the venom is injected subcutaneously or intramuscularly. Interestingly, dry bites, where the venom isn't released despite the bite, occur in about 50% of all snake bites. While we used to associate myotoxicity and neurotoxicity mainly with alapid envenomation, we know it can occur with crotaline bites in Central and South America. Even within a species, the venom impact varies. For example, the Mojave rattlesnakes contain potent neurotoxin while others do not. Pertinently, some of the effects of snake bites include, number one, cytotoxicity. Snake venoms, which are rich in enzymes, cause local tissue injury and inflammation, leading to pain, swelling, and potential tissue necrosis. The consequential increased vascular permeability may cause local ecchymosis. Effect on lymphatic system. Venom-induced damage to lymphatics can trigger edema. And thirdly, platelet dysfunction. Both quantitative and qualitative platelet defects can occur alongside with other coagulation problems. So Rahul, what are some of the other systemic effects we see from snake bites? Absolutely, Pradeep. Now, other systemic effects center around neurotoxicity, cardiotoxicity, hypotension, and nephrotoxicity. Let's go into each of these. First, let's go through neurotoxicity. Classically, these are associated with elapids. Neurotoxins actually can cause a progressive descending paralysis, starting with bulbar muscles and potentially compromising the airway and respiration. This is different than something like Guillain-Barre, which is ascending. The second effect is cardiotoxicity. Now, direct venom can actually paralyze and be toxic to the muscle. This can cause rhabdomyolysis to the peripheral muscles, but it can also cause signs and symptoms of cardiac failure as well as respiratory compromise. Thirdly, patients can have hypotension. Now, this could be due to their cardiotoxicity, but remember, there are bradykinin potentiating peptides and naturetting peptides that can also induce hypotension. Hypotension can also arise from anaphylaxis or hypovolemia. Finally, nephrotoxicity. Direct venom-related injury or microangiopathy can cause acute kidney injury, potentially progressing to chronic kidney disease or renal failure. Now, envenomation due to certain species like Russell viper and coral snakes are particularly associated with nephrotoxicity. So you can remember Russell viper, renal. Just to summarize, diagnosing snake envenomation particularly in young children, often depends on bite observation, wound appearance, and the patient's clinical course. 
Consider snake bites if a patient presents with abdominal pain, coagulopathy, and neuropathy, and then you see a abnormal punctate skin finding. After a snake bite, I would counsel families to avoid capturing the snake and instead try to take a safe picture for identification in the hospital setting. Initial labs such as CBC, CMP, a CK, coagulation profile, they at first may be negative. So you may want to trend these. As we mentioned, the venom effects can be delayed. All right, Pradeep. So if our history, physical, and diagnostic investigation led us to snake envenomation as our diagnosis, do you mind going through a general management framework, please? So in snake bite cases, pre-hospital care involves an immediate call to the EMS and ensuring that airway, breathing, and hemodynamics are fine. Once in the hospital, continue general supportive care, focusing again on airway, hemodynamics, pain management. Typically, we tell folks to avoid NSAIDs and managing potentially acute kidney injury. Quickly administer the antivenin, monitor progression of symptoms. So we mark the leading edge of the bite site, ensure good patient access, manage potential shock, uh, make sure the tetanus immunization is updated, and inspect and clean the wounds. Antibiotics should be started for wound infections after drawing cultures, and eye exam is required if there is ocular involvement with immediate copious eye irrigation. Thanks so much, Pradeep, for that management framework. Now, to summarize, pre-hospital first aid measures like incision, suction, cryotherapy, tourniquets, you know, there have been reports of electric shocks or, you know, all these traditional remedies are not really recommended for snake bites. I think rapid hospital transport is crucial. Asymptomatic children and confirmed or suspected coral bite victims might be hospitalized for observation due to potential delayed neurotoxic effects, which actually could be difficult to reverse in severe cases. Now, coral snake bites in particular require ICU admission and prompt treatment. And just like we saw in our case, copperhead bites at times also do, as we will talk about crofab, which is the antivenin. Talking about crofab, Rahul, can you speak to us about antivenin considerations? Absolutely. When it comes to crofab or the antivenin, I think it's a pretty multidisciplinary discussion with the medical team and health department or even poison control. Antivenin or antivenom or crofab, these are essentially antibodies developed in animals, typically horses or sheep, to neutralize the toxic components of venom. Their effectiveness depends on factors like source animal purification level and type of antibody fragment used. Smaller fragments have larger volumes of distribution and shorter half-lives. Crofab dosage is challenging due to unknown venom load. However, generally, children require similar or higher initial antivenin doses as adults due to their smaller vascular volume and potential need for a more concentrated antivenom. Now, the risk of hypersensitivity reaction is why these children are admitted to the PICU. Skin testing before administration is generally discouraged as the results can be misleading. And this is a relatively acute scenario. So you want to act quickly uh, when giving the antivenin or crofab. 
Now, certain antivenoms may require pretreatment with epinephrine to counter potential anaphylactic reactions. And I think from a practical point, it's helpful to have antihistaminergic agents such as diphenhydramine, acetaminophen, epi right at the bedside, just in case there could be some reaction. The choice of antivenin depends on factors like safety, kinetics, cost, and the specific snake involved. We've talked a lot about crofab, and so crofab is a bovine-derived antivenin, and it's primarily used for pit viper envenomations, but is ineffective against coral snake bites. For coral snake bites, the North American coral snake antivenin, which is a specialized venin, is actually used. So, Pradeep, what factors guide the choice of antivenin, and can you comment a bit on the dosage which uh, I just introduced? So, Rahul, the decision to administer antivenin is based on clinical presentation and potential for progression, like local tissue injury, coagulopathy, or systemic effects. Initial control with crofab involves about four to six vials or even up to 12 for severe cases, which are combined with 250 ml of saline solution and administered at a specific rate. If the control isn't obtained within an hour, the load may be repeated. That is, the four to six vials need to be given again. Now, maintenance dosing is recommended but may not prevent recurrence in all cases. Recurrence of envenomation, anaphylaxis, and serum sickness are potential side effects of antivenin. Recurrence due to faster clearance of the unbound antivenin than the venom may require further antivenin administration. Serum sickness, a delayed reaction characterized by fever, urticaria, lymphadenopathy, and polyarthritis, is usually benign and self-limited. If there is concern for compartment syndrome, though rare, surgical consultation is recommended. Thanks so much, Pradeep. And I think it's interesting to note, uh, and we mentioned this, that along with all of these acute therapies, uh, parents should be explained that snakes are often best left alone and never to touch or try to catch or kill the snakes, especially after the bite. Even dead snake fangs can still inject venom to cause snake envenomation. Rahul, can you summarize the high points of our discussion today? Absolutely. Let's go ahead and summarize. So point number one, a high index of suspicion is required to make a diagnosis of snake bite, especially in unwitnessed bites or when it's often difficult to obtain a reliable history. Remember, the wounds may mimic punctures from benign things like plant thorns, but in true envenomation, the symptoms are more progressive. The second summary point today is antivenin is the mainstay of therapy and rapid transport of a child to a facility which has the antivenin is recommended. Remember the antivenin that we talked about a lot with the copperhead bites was the crofab and these patients receiving antivenin should be admitted to the PICU just in case of any systemic side effects from the venom itself or the crofab which could cause anaphylaxis. Patients and their families should be educated about recurrence, serum sickness, especially after the Crofab administration, and the need to avoid NSAIDs, especially in the setting of any coagulopathies, any contact sports, elective surgeries, dental work. Just because these children might be prone to bleeding in the setting of a coagulopathy, we would recommend at least two weeks after the pit viper bite. Excellent points, Rahul. This concludes our episode on snake envenomation. 
We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by me, Pradeep Kumar, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.